legal cannabis industry has unlocked generational wealth opportunities across the country. But the industry's regulatory complexities, constant state of change, and speed of evolution drive confusion for entrepreneurs and investors alike. On this podcast, we'll interview the industry leaders who are shaping the future of the legal cannabis industry to help our listeners understand these idiosyncrasies. This is Cannabis Unlocked, hosted by Key Investment Partners. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Cannabis Unlocked. I'm Jordan Euclid, one of the founding partners of Key Investment Partners, and today I am honored to be joined by Chris Walsh. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm uh, actually honored to be here as well. So excited to talk about this business. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I'm just so excited to get your perspective as the CEO of MJ Business Daily. You know, you have seen so much in the industry's transformation, and obviously, just by nature of your business, you're literally always at the forefront of what's the cutting edge latest information. So would love to get into all of that, but maybe just to kick things off, would love if you could give the uh, listeners a little bit of background on who you are and uh, your career progression. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I'm actually from the Denver area and I went to college out here and majored in journalism. So that was my professional background. And I worked at mainstream newspapers covering everything from the uh, the end of the rise of the tech industry. I started. I graduated in uh, early 2000 and was covering uh, technology companies for a newspaper. And within six months, the whole thing had collapsed with the tech bust. So uh, that was a real trial by fire, and uh, learned a lot of lessons about business in general. Then that we could see play out in cannabis, and that we have seen in Canada play out with a lot of uh, irrational exuberance around uh, a a thriving industry. And so I stayed in journalism as a reporter and an editor. I moved to South Korea and then I was moving back and considering new options. I was earning my MBA uh, in international business and uh, I left for South Korea in 2009. And when I came back two years later, uh, there were more dispensaries, medical marijuana dispensaries in Denver than Starbucks. That was a common uh, phrase that everyone would would uh, throw out to show you how quickly that the industry cropped up here in the Colorado area. And uh, when I had left in 2009, there were zero dispensaries. It wasn't even an industry. So in a, in a two-year time, it became an actual uh, business. And so uh, two uh, women who co-founded uh, this company together uh, hired me to help launch it and uh, basically to serve a nascent industry that had no access to uh, business intelligence, to news, to analysis, to data. Uh, You know, back then there was none of that. Um, And everyone, a lot of people saw medical cannabis industry as a joke. So that's really uh, how this company started and how I transitioned into it. I was, you know, in the journalism side and had my MBA. And uh, I was really just intrigued by this opportunity to help build this uh, pioneering company in an industry that we didn't even know if it would be around in a year or two. Wow. Wow. Well, that's uh, fantastic to hear that you just took the leap in at such an early time. And I would just love to hear what are some, and I know this is such a big question, but I mean, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in that time frame from 2011 to today? I mean, the changes are massive and, and the industry evolved in a way that uh, no one could have predicted 
um, and that I certainly didn't predict being close to it in, in its kind of early days. You know, back then it was, um, it, it was not very professional. There were not uh, experienced business people, entrepreneurs, investors involved, almost at all. There were definitely some, but most, uh, most you know, had had an affinity for cannabis, um, maybe had been growing it in college or as adults, uh, maybe used it frequently and all of a sudden found themselves in an environment where they were going to try and open a business and, you know, not have to do this in the shadows and go over to some dude's house and, you know, purchase marijuana in the basement and smoke some with the person selling it to you, right? This is a whole new thing. And at that time, the there was no one knew how this was going to play out because it was federally illegal as it is now, but uh, but businesses didn't exist. So as states started legalizing, uh, you know, entrepreneurs said, uh, we're going to try this and see what happens. And so there were really no regulations back then in most states that had legalized. So you just had this situation where a state had legalized and cleared the way and uh, people took risks. And, you know, I use the term entrepreneurs loosely because these these were not serial entrepreneurs in many cases. They were not. Uh, a lot of people didn't come from a professional business background and some hadn't held real legit professional jobs. Right. And they were opening dispensaries. They started growing cannabis and providing it to caregivers or they became caregivers, were giving it to patients, were opening up uh, storefronts. And so at that time, there was no regulation. So one of the biggest changes we've seen, and it happened fairly quickly in a period of a couple of years, is states started realizing that this industry was was um, cropping up in their backyards and there were problems without any regulations. You know, you had sign spinners on popular street corners uh, advertising half-price joints. Uh, doesn't seem very medical, and it seems to, to uh, not really be in the spirit of the laws that were passed. And so anyone and everyone was getting in and most people didn't have a medical background, you know, <laughs> medical cannabis, nope. Um, so, you know, you had states quickly start to regulate the industry and there was a lot of trial and error, what works, what doesn't, what's over-regulation, what's under-regulation, how do you handle enforcement and oversight? Uh, and then so you saw this wave of regulation and now, of course, every state has regulations. And in many cases, they're very strict on the medical side and then, of course, recreational. So I would say that's one of the biggest uh, changes that we've seen. And also, I, I would just like to highlight there's many, many changes, but two more. One is the, the more recent trend over the last few years of mainstream professionals, very experienced people in the business world getting involved, either joining cannabis companies uh, or starting their own or investing in them, um, as you yourself have done, right, coming from a traditional investing background and then seeing the opportunities here. That has been a big change. And then finally, it's really the public opinion. Um, you know, you've got 90% uh, of the population supports the legalization of medical cannabis, over 90%. And you have in the mid to high 60s uh, support recreational legalization. That happened very, very quickly. And, you know, for, for this drug, uh, this plant to be demonized for so long. Uh, so all of that combined to make this a really exciting, extremely challenging uh, industry uh, with opportunities, you know, kind of everywhere you look. Yeah. And it's really interesting you bring up how quickly that change in perception has happened. Have you felt that on the ground as well, just in your conversations with people from then to today? Yeah, I have felt it. I think surprisingly, when we started in 2011, 
I was not a cannabis user myself. I mean, I've done it in college and done it every now and then rarely since then it was illegal. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't really my thing. Um, and then, you know, so when I did this, a lot of people that I knew were kind of surprised and they're like, wait, what you're starting a marijuana, you know, like a weed publication, <laughs> you know, where you try it, you were a closet, you know, high times reader and, uh, <laughs> and it wasn't the case. And, and, you know, these were professional journalists. These were my friends from college. These were, you know, people that just uh, did, didn't wondered what the heck I was doing. Um, but I didn't really encounter much resistance when I would talk to people. If anything, people were intrigued back then. Um, even if they didn't necessarily agree with it, they weren't anti it. They said, mm, that's weird. And they just wouldn't really ask any more questions. No one really came out and said, oh, my God, you know, this is the you know, devil's lettuce. What are you doing? You're supporting, you know, you're, you're, you're going to support this illegal drug. And um, and but what I've seen to your question along the way is more people are fascinated by it because they see it helping their communities. They're, it's helping them. It's helping people in their family. Right. I can't tell you. Almost everyone I meet nowadays has some personal experience with cannabis from someone they know, uh, might be their grandparents, might be themselves, as I said, it might be a friend or someone they heard about or a colleague that is using it beneficially on the medical side. And then others just feel that re the recreational side isn't, isn't the, the sky is falling situation everyone said it would be. So, um, you know, very little resistance I heard back then, even less now. And more than anything, people now are kind of like, well, how do I get into the industry? <laughs> that yeah. seems to be their question. They didn't really ask that before, but now I hear that all the time. <laughs> you know, and I think it's a great point you bring up too with the stigma. And I certainly even still felt that leaving traditional private equity to get into cannabis back in 2018. And I think that stigma is a real thing. And it was certainly, I'm sure, a roadblock for a lot of entrepreneurs who saw the opportunity and probably would have jumped in otherwise but they just didn't feel like they wanted to be affiliated with, you know, a, a quote unquote vice industry. And, and we certainly have seen that even in the last several years, that pace has continued to accelerate just in the terms of the quality management teams we're seeing and the deals we're looking at and all of that. So really excited to see the, the progress continue and to normalize. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, the people who did this in the first, especially five, six, seven years, were taking on a lot of risk. You know, you didn't know if the federal government, it was going to come in and raid your operation. It did happen. There were raids in California, in Montana, in Washington State, in Colorado, you know, in 2011, 2012. And that risk was there for a long time. Uh, there was a risk of the audits and, and, you know, and maybe your whole financial situation crumbling. And then, of course, there was a risk to your personal and professional reputations. You know, if for many years, if you were in the cannabis industry, you didn't want to tell the other kids' parents you know, at the soccer game on Saturday, what you did for a living, right? Because they might uh, say, get away from my kid. Um, and, uh, and so there was a lot of that stigma or, or your professional life. If I go into cannabis and it doesn't work out and I want to get back into what I was doing before, now is that going to hurt me? Because people are going to look at my resume and experience and say, what, you, you're working for a marijuana company? No way you're going to work over here. So a lot of that has evaporated and it's becoming, you know, the cool, the cool business opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, diving further into MJ Business Daily, you know, know you guys have a lot of different uh, business lines at that point. So maybe just from uh, an operational perspective, we'd love to hear the history of uh, how you built the company. Yeah, it was really from day one about trying to serve a, an emerging industry with credible, reliable um, information. And that's really what 
has underpinned everything we've we've done since then. And at first, it really was information. You know, I was writing uh, little reports on how to land financing or the regulatory checklists in Colorado that I was compiling. Um, it was news and analysis written by a journalist like myself, a business journalist that was focused purely on the business side, not the consumer, not the patient, not the advocates, and not that they're not important, they totally are, but we had a very narrow laser-like focus that no one was doing because it's easy to get distracted in this industry. And, um, and no one was bringing that professional business approach to any type of information or content. So that's really how it started. It was how, how best can we serve the you know, entrepreneurs, the investors, uh, the executives in this industry who are trying to feel their way along and have very little places to turn to for information and data. And then that evolved quickly into, okay, we see a hole with um, the, you know, in, in getting people together in a professional venue to network, to learn from each other, to educate others, uh, and then to, you know, market and sell their products or find new ones. And that was the traditional trade show model, which is out there in every single industry. But this industry didn't have one that was run like we did it. Um, at the time, the shows were very, uh, you know, you'd have a medical cannabis show, it had nothing to do with anything medical. And it was what you'd expect. It was bongs on the show floor and it was, uh, you know, some 80s rap band singing, you know, smoking on stage. And, and it wasn't for business people um, or at least the type of business people fueling the industry. Um, and so that's what we brought to the industry. And I remember the first one, we I wore a suit and tie, right? And we took, we went out on a limb. I didn't want to be seen as the outsider, but on the other hand, it was like, hey, if you want the industry, if you want the mainstream to take you seriously, act serious and get serious about growing your business. And yes, helping patients. At that time, it was only medical. But thinking it uh, about it from a different lens, how do you stay in touch with patient, changing patient wants and needs. That's a fundamental business concept, but it's also something that help, helps people and that you should be paying attention to. You know, how do you grow your business? How do you tackle 280E? And what are strategies to get around that? None of that was being talked about. So, you know, we evolved from kind of a media approach and then we had data, our marijuana business Factbook, which we still do today, uh, intensive research project every year for the industry. And then we evolved into events. What's that? Then I've got a copy here. All right. Yeah, we have our next one coming out uh, very soon here. But, you know, it was all that. It was the types of things that could, could help people in the industry. Yeah, that makes total sense. And so with regards to um, the uh, newsletter and the various periodicals, how have you seen your viewership or readership rather change over time? Yeah, I think at first there was nowhere to go at all for this type of information I've been talking about, this type of content, this type of networking, these type of business venues and events. And so um, I think we, we helped professionalize the industry. And I don't say that with like a, you know, with any hubris, but that was part of our goal. And, um, you know, what, what we've seen in, along the way is now there's a lot of places to get information. There's a lot of places to get data. It was a black hole of data. Our first fact book, I would be up until 3 or 4 a.m. Uh, working from home because we didn't have an office for the first couple of years and uh, putting together this massive research report. And, and I was looking at every state that had legalized and saying, okay, how many, how many licenses do they have, business licenses? And, and what are the medical conditions? And how many patients 
And how has that changed? And what is the potential revenue? You know, what are sales? And it was so difficult because states weren't even tracking this information or they were tracking it differently. Some states didn't track it at all. They didn't even know how many uh, retailers, dispensaries were in their state. Like it was, wow. it was insane. <laughs> and you'd be digging through all these documents and seeing whatever you could piece together. And I had to come up with, um, you know, projections and estimates and methodologies behind it. And that's because there was nothing out there. Now, you know, there's a ton of data. There's uh, companies, you know, offering POS systems that are getting real-time solid data on sales, product tra tra tracing and all of that. So, uh, and then there's other companies that just do data. So that's really evolved. So people now have a lot of places to go for information and for help. There's a ton of events out there now too. So as anyone running a business knows, you you have got to be flexible along the way and you've got to make sure that you are constantly in touch with whoever you're trying to serve. For us, it's a reader, uh, it's a conference attendee, it's an advertiser, it's an exhibitor. Um, and in some cases we fell behind some of the trends uh, because you know you get fat and happy and you're, you're doing what you did the whole time that made you successful and you just keep doing that. Uh, and in other cases we did innovate and we did expand. So we have a big focus the last couple of years on making sure we're uh, you know, having those connections with the industry to make sure we're doing and serving them in the right way. And so now readers are more um, discerning and um, you know they want very specific information a lot of times. And before it was any information you get was cool, right? And great. Now, you know what, if you're a cultivator or you're running a cultivation operation, you need data or information specific to that niche. Uh, and that's harder and harder to do because you have to drill down. You have your own issues. They're different from what a retailer experiences or an ancillary company or whatever. So it's become so broad and big. You know, our challenge is where do you stay surface level to give the bigger picture? And where do you drill down deeper for more insightful information, how to's, takeaways from others who have done it and data? And uh, because you can't do it all. So uh, that's how we've seen the readership in particular change is they want more information deeper into their specific areas. Got it. That's really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. And, and one, one last thing I'd say is um, the mainstream media, which I came from, you know, really saw this industry as more of a joke for many years after we started. And um, they gave us nicknames like the Wall Street of Weed. You know, they're always trying to put puns into things and headlines, and they had no full-time staffers, reporters covering this industry. It was just a side thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I could not believe it when, um, you know, you would, you would look at a major state like California, and the Los Angeles Times didn't have a cannabis business reporter. <laughs> With everything going on, I mean, it was a massive industry in the shadows. It was unregulated. It was going, you know, trying to get regulations, and it was just a side thing. No one was taking the industry seriously. Um, so now there's more more mainstream media actually devoting a lot of good quality attention to the industry. And so I think that's benefited readers in general. Totally. And back to that whole stigma thing, right? I think uh, you're certainly not the first executive from a cannabis biz business who's had to face that uh, uh, dismissive attitude or whatever it may be. But, you know, and I think this gets uh, into our next topic of discussion. You're going to be and others in the industry have clearly proven that they're laughing all the way to the bank. And I think that gets us right into the recent announcement you guys had of a huge acquisition by Emerald X. So we'd love to learn more about your exit of the business. 
Yeah, I mean, talk to anyone in the industry if you're in it, you'll, you'll know. Um, I mean, I have a podcast seat to CEO. I talk to other CEOs and executives, and we all say the same thing. You you have this is going to be the hardest industry uh, you've ever worked in uh, because it changes so quickly, and there are so many opportunities. There are so many distractions. There are people in it can be fabulous. They can be weird. You know, they can be tough to deal with from a business perspective. So many challenges along the way. So, you know, we we've been doing this for 11 years now. That's like 40 years in any other industry. Um, and so, you know, we we built this. Uh, we learned a lot of lessons. I think we did a lot of things right as well. But, you know, then we hit COVID, right? And and in our business model, which leaned heavily on live events, it started more on the media side, but then the events took off, and that became the vast majority of our revenue. That disappeared overnight. And yes, hotel, we were hit as hard as hotels, airlines, you know, anyone in those types of industries, restaurants, even harder because we couldn't come back for a long time. Uh, and so, you know, we had a very difficult 2020 into 2021. And, uh, you know, we were never on the verge of not making it, but we had to make painful decisions, downsize, uh, reorganize, rethink what we were doing. So then we came out of it, right? And we we were able to host last year, last October, MJ BizCon, our big flagship event in Las Vegas. And we had a very successful event with more than 27,000 business attendees and, uh, you know, more than 1,200 exhibitors. And um, along that way, you know, towards the second half of 2021, uh, Anna and Cassandra, you know, who are the two uh, owners, um, had basically said, you know, we're ready to pass the torch to another ownership group because we've done what we can over 10, 11 years and and it's time. Um, we need to level up our skill set too. And because to compete going forward is going to take different skills than it did to get to this point. And I've been saying that for the last year or two, I've seen it all over the place. So, um, you know, we laid down the groundwork and um, and we're able to complete a transaction with Emerald X, which is a publicly traded mainstream business event company. So what's interesting about this is uh, there's been a lot of M&A activity in the industry, as you well know. The vast majority of it is between cannabis companies uh, or, or a cannabis fund taking a large equity majority stake in a cannabis company or one retailer gobbling up another. Um, we are one of the few examples so far of a fully mainstream company with no interest in cannabis to date uh, acquiring, you know, that they acquired us uh, as their first foray into cannabis, again, publicly traded as well. Um, and so I, I do think it means a lot for the industry because uh, we've been seeing this uh, momentum build, right, for everything we've been talking about people taking it seriously, people seeing the opportunity, it becoming mainstream, the general public accepting it, uh, the stigma eroding. And this is a great indication of that. Um, and uh, I expect fully to see more of, of the mainstream companies come in uh, when they feel comfortable with the situation. Two years ago, three years ago, we couldn't have sold to a company like this because of the stigma was still strong because the, the legal team with the company would say, uh-uh, you know, we're not, we're not going to take on this risk, but you've seen the cracks appear in that, right? And that more companies are taking that risk. You've seen mainstream beverage companies, you know, get involved and launching CBD brands and in some cases, THC. And so you're starting to see this all over. 
And, uh, you know, as, as more companies do it, the more cracks appear in that dam. And, uh, and for us, it was, you know, I'm, I'm still here doing what I was doing before. Uh, so I'm still fully immersed in it, but it was the culmination at least of, of the first very, very long chapter of MJ biz, because, uh, you know, now we turn the, turn the page and there's a lot more work to be done, but it was a very good feeling, especially coming off a, a very, very difficult, you know, year and a half period under COVID. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's really exciting. Thank you. Yep. And so as we look towards more mergers, I think, uh, I certainly agree with your assessment that we're going to see more uh, non-cannabis players entering the cannabis market for the first time. And I also expect we'll see additional consolidation amongst the big cannabis uh, existing MSOs, right? And no so, doubt. You know, the last few weeks you saw Live on Pharmacan coming together. You're now seeing the announcement of Cresco and Columbia Care. And so would love to get your views on uh, how you expect the landscape for consolidation to continue progressing here in the future. Yeah, and so it, at MJ BizCon in October, I do. I've been doing this thing for many years, where I'll, I'll give pre predictions at the end of my kind of state of the industry speech to kick off the event. And so I track the, my record with the last year's predictions, and then offer new ones. Uh, and you know, sometimes, oftentimes, I'm wrong, uh, and other times I'm right. It's a fool's errand, but it's just kind of a fun thing. And so at that show in October. That was exactly one of my predictions was that this year we were going to see two to three large deals in the US between major players. And we saw that first happen last year with True Leave and Harvest, you know, announcing that deal. And but we had started to see that in Canada too. So it felt to me like this was the year where that's really going to take hold in the US because the market's ripe for that. You finally have these big, bigger MSOs that have been, in some cases, strategically, in some cases, not so strategically, uh, expanding across the country. And, uh, and they were going to start teaming up uh, and, and merging. And, uh, and so that's what's starting. We're starting to see that already in, in early April here. Uh, it's a natural progression in any industry. And, uh, you know, I think now you have the capital behind a lot of these companies to be able to pull off these moves. Uh, these are massive deals for the cannabis industry. In other industries like tech, these are still tiny. Uh, but you know, these are these are big deals. This is another iteration of the cannabis industry, and you're seeing that you not only have the capital, you have the expertise. A lot of these MSOs have hired people on who have done this before in other industries, right? They are finance, merger, acquisition, growth, scaling experts, and a lot of them are leading the charge to do this, and so. Uh, you know, I expect that to continue to play out. Uh, you have these people who see the potential where this industry is going to go, and they know who the winners and losers are likely going to be. And they're trying to say, we're going to be the next Starbucks, McDonald's, you know, you name it, of, of the cannabis industry. And this is what we need to do. Now, I would caution everyone out there, you know, these things can backfire extraordinarily. You know, we saw that we've, we've seen, saw can, can, Canadian cannabis companies mess a lot of this up with mergers, acquisitions, with uh, growth and scaling and making really bad investments based on hype and, and unrealistic growth uh, projections and estimates. So it's not like all of these are, are destined to become, you know, 
uh, mega mergers that uh, turn them into the next Starbucks or whatever you want to compare it to. Um, the, the real work is beginning after they, they do these mergers. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And it's funny you talk about that uh, you know, hype on the Canadian markets. And I think in a lot of ways, that time period where we saw all that excitement when you know Constellation came into Canopy and public markets were going crazy. In a lot of ways, that's hurt the industry because a lot of investors were just burnt by these overinflated valuations and have been too hesitant to, to get back in. Yeah, and you know the the Canadian story is fascinating. A lot of lessons to be learned, and that's that's a big one that that you hope that the U.S. companies now going through similar things have learned, and you're hoping this outside business expertise is enough to make sure they avoid that. But I mean, we see ridiculous moves in the business world every day among companies and people that should know better. So we'll have to see how it plays out. But yeah, I mean, we we saw what happens if you're not careful with this. Uh, in the not so distant past. Yeah, exactly. And I'm curious to get your thoughts too, as these mega mergers continue, you talk about the regulatory process too. Uh, you know, and in particular, as we think about this, like Cresco Columbia Care merger, I think it was a week or two ago, you guys published an article about how many assets are going to be divested. So how do you expect that uh, complicated regulatory environment is going to impact the uh, merger landscape in the future? Yeah, I think these these are the test cases that we're seeing. These first couple doing it here, it's an immensely um, complicated uh, process. You know, it's it's in other industries. Yeah, there are some highly regulated industries that are similar uh, for sure, but in many industries, you don't have the hurdles of every state that these companies operate in is completely different from a regulatory situation than other states, and so. Um, and, and you don't have people in the U.S. who have done it at this scale in this industry before, you know, before basically last year, uh, when that's still playing out um, with True Leave and Harvest. So uh, they're kind of the guinea pigs. And, and it is an immensely difficult situation. The one thing is that these companies now should have their regulatory and compliance teams, you know, really fully built up and, and ready to go. To understand how this is all going to work, I don't think they would have gotten this big without, you know, being at an AA plus level in that area anyway, because it is so complex. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know what issues are going to crop up. I mean, in some cases, you have states that don't allow outside investment, or you can only own a certain number of licenses, and uh, you know, there's there's just a myriad issues you've got to work through. Um, and then you know, the biggest isn't necessarily the best. You know, we've seen in Canada another example. Some of these large producers are getting their butts handed to them by the craft producers now, and they're actually losing market share, even though they're they've you know gobbled up their competitors. And um, so we have to we have to see where this all goes. The key, as as you well know, is going to be you know how can they uh, integrate all of this? How effectively can they do that, and then come up with a a business plan around that in the long term? Uh, without losing their focus, without getting bogged down in all the stuff, or uh, without losing touch, you know, with the patient or or consumer base. And by the way, those are different in every state too. So you can't have a one-size-fits-all approach. In many cases, you can't have the Starbucks approach because guess what? A patient or consumer in California is really different in terms of wants and needs than one in New York, and uh, versus one in Oklahoma versus one in Florida. 
Um, so you've got to be dialed into each of these markets and they're going to, you can't just have the same types of products on the shelves, uh, not only because of regulations, but also because of preferences and the maturity of the market, the maturity and sophistication of the consumer and the patient. Yeah, absolutely. And of the supply chain. The supply chain, yep. So then, Chris, shifting to the regulatory front, you know, I think uh, a lot of excitement from folks more even outside the industry with regards to more getting reintroduced. And that's something that's kind of always been funny to me is that a lot of the stuff that moves the public markets are things that are legislative at the federal level that we in the industry know really have no practical likelihood of getting passed. Then when companies report earnings, even if those fundamentals are really strong, the market doesn't move at all. So it's just kind of an interesting dislocation we, we tend to see. So I'm curious to get your thoughts with that potentially loaded question, what your views are on, on the MORE Act and, and the legislative framework going forward. Yeah, you bring up a great point that the markets don't move on anything that a normal industry moves on. When you, when you expect that it's gonna move up or down based on something, it doesn't do anything. You know, and then when you expect it's not going to do anything, all of a sudden it's up or down, you know, and you're like, what the hell? What is this moving on? I can't even figure it out half the time. But to your point, yes, anything tied to federal legislation, you know, usually results in a rapid uh, near-term swing just from the headlines alone. You know, the House passing, you know, a cannabis reform bill, you know, is great, but we all know the chances of that clearing the Senate are minuscule and, and the House already did it once, right? Like, so, it, it, you know, I think people just read into it and maybe don't even know and they're just, oh, cool, like this is going to pass. Um, and that fuels the like retail investors, you know, with 300 bucks who are like, I'm buying cannabis stocks. I mean, I hear it all the time from people I know, friends or or family who see something like that. And they're like, oh, which stock should I invest in? And I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm not giving you advice. We don't play that role you know, with, <laughs> with journalism ethics. But um, so, so yeah, to your point, I, you know, the the one thing that this move does when when the House, or, you know, f federal government chamber or committee does something, is it it just moves that needle further. So what we've seen time and time again in the history of cannabis legalization and legislation is it's a bunch of small wins over time that eventually leads to the big one. It's not a not you know a, a, a switch anywhere it's like there's usually resistance it's a, a couple people you know like carrying the flag legislators or advocates and then you know they get enough for the ballot maybe it doesn't pass the first time uh, or a, a lawmaker there's two or three and they get a couple signatures it doesn't get out of committee and then it builds right and then people learn more about it they become more comfortable with it they look at other parts of the country now that have done it and they realize uh, you know, there, there aren't the negatives they saw. So something like this, you know, the second time the House passing, this um, is significant only in the sense that it, it, it just, it will continue to build that momentum. And this is what has to happen before it actually passes. I mean, to think that the federal government would pass some sweeping legislation, you know, on cannabis, you know, in just a couple of years, like if we go back a couple of years, is silly when you really think about it. Now, I will tell you, in 2017, 18, I did think we were going to see federal change. I didn't know what it was going to look like, maybe banking or something, but that didn't happen. So I told you about my predictions that when I was wrong. So I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about the federal situation because it's so hard to figure out. Um, we would have never guessed in 2011 when there were 
12, 13 states that had legalized medical and many of them without regulations, that in just 10 years, you'd have 39 states plus DC that had legalized medical and 19 plus DC that had legalized recreational. So it has moved on a state basis very quickly over 10 years. Um, you gotta think the dam is gonna break federally soon, but it always feels like it's about to break and then it never does. Mm -hmm. Do you think it could break with safe banking this year? Um, I was way more optimistic about that um, you know, earlier last year until some key lawmakers uh, were trying to get others to vote against it to pass a bigger sweeping bill because you know the Cory Bookers of the world were saying, you know what, if we pass that, that's only a small win. When we really need to pass this big thing with social equity and letting states decide, it's like, totally hear you. Yes, that should be the ultimate goal, but you're not gonna get there without incremental change. So that the fact that there was kind of a fracturing among the people who are really championing this and should be rallying together and to, to th think this is gonna be an all or nothing uh, move here at the federal level is silly. It's, it could set us back a decade because it's going to take forever to get any type of agreement on what that should look like, uh, a majority agreement. So that's really discouraging for me. Um, and uh, so I don't know. I don't know if if if, if banking, if we're going to see that this year. I mean, our, the window's closing. You know, if, if the Democrats, you know, if what happens in, in the next election happens, you know, uh, the Republicans could, and there are signs, some Republicans are trying to say, okay, we're gonna be the ones that do it. And they are now starting to embrace some changes to cannabis laws federally, but who knows? This was this was largely seen as the big window with the Democrats having a majority to do something and the window's almost shut. Yep, yep. Well, maybe on a brighter note, how about any uh, predictions for November at the state level? Yeah, I mean, we, we, it's, it's been a fantastic run for legalization in the last two years. You had a couple states legalize in 2020 before the election, and then you had a clean sweep with you know five states legalizing. Every state that had a measure on its ballot passed it, in, some, in most cases by a large margin. You had some resistance in Mississippi, but that's it has legalized now after a judge overturned it and some problems in South Dakota. But what you saw is, you know, red states really jumping on board the medical side now and shifting. That'll be the next wave is some red states to go with the adult use legalization. And then you you turn the calendar to 2021 and, oh, damn, New York, you know, uh, adult use. That was a massive move because New York's the financial capital of the world. And now you're getting people like yourself who was in before that in who are taking it seriously. It's coming in their backyard now. Um, so I think on the financial side, that's huge. And as that industry crops up there, the, the adult use side, you're gonna get the attention to more hedge funds and uh, venture capitalists and Wall Street in general. It's gonna become, they're gonna put pressure on federal government. All that money is gonna put pressure on the federal government because of the opportunities. You know, and then you had Connecticut, New Mexico and Virginia, and it just keeps going. And so, uh, you know, I, I, there's a lot of states have legalized. There's a lot of markets that are up and running, but we still have a ways to go. And so, yeah, I'm fully, um, I'm fully expecting we're going to see another handful of states legalize. Uh, these are not the big New York size markets. Most of those are gone now. Um, but 
any state that legalizes, you know, I, I'm thinking three or four this year. Um, I, I hate to pinpoint exactly which ones. There's always a dark horse or two. There's always one that looks promising that doesn't make it. But, uh, you know, I think we're going to move that legalization push forward, which only helps it means more representatives in Congress uh, are now representing people that have legalized cannabis and populations. And so, uh, you know, I think there'll be some some promising red states that go this route. And that's what we need now. We need more of the red states uh, to legalize medical and then rec. And then we have the big prizes going forward. You know, Florida adult use legalization would be massive. Texas, uh, a full medical program there would be good enough. Um, and then, you know, then you have to look uh, forward to a day in the very distant future where this is more normalized and you're going to have, um, you know, interstate commerce in cannabis. Now, that's a long way out, but uh, lot, still a lot of potential, a lot to look forward to, and a lot of uh, a lot of challenging situations we're all going to find ourselves in. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure through it all, uh, a lot of news to report on. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not worried about that for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much for joining the podcast this afternoon. It's been such a blast. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Have a great uh, rest of your afternoon. All right. You too.